I've been asked this evening to uh, to speak on the Pramaviharas. And before beginning to speak, I'd just like to know how many of you who are here are familiar with the Brahmaviharas? Mm. Uh, also known as the Divine Abidings. Uh, also known as the Four Immeasurables. I think those who are familiar with Tibetan Buddhist traditions might be more familiar with the, the Brahmaviharas or Divine Abodes, Divine Abidings under the name of the Four Immeasurables. Uh, before beginning, I want to introduce you to uh, my, my companions in monastic life here, who I've come together with this evening. In fact, Ayasui uh, Jana, uh, she is a, a bhikkhuni, uh, Californian, native Californian, not, not an import from another country, um, born here in Northern California. Uh, but we just got her back from the forest refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts, where she spent the last two months uh, on personal retreat. And, uh, feel much appreciation for the, the Forest Refuge being there and allowing people this kind of personal retreat time ongoing, and uh, for their support for our bhikkhunis, uh, our renaissance uh, Theravada bhikkhuni sangha, because it had died out for a while, some people say a thousand years, I think probably less, just restarting now again, uh, particularly in the last five and uh, ten years. and. I've had the, the honor and very good fortune as serving as a preceptor for women for their full ordination in, in Theravada Buddhism. Um, so this has been uh, like a, a real real privilege and honor for me. We have Sister Sumedha here also. Our, actually, our community is quite international. You just happen to have a group of three Americans with you here this evening. <laughs> so one from California, one from, uh, from Washington State, and, uh, and one from who knows where, <laughs> from roundabouts. Uh, I think this life has been like a, what is it, like a smorgasbord of, uh, of experiences. So sometime living in Washington State as well, although born in Washington, D.C., on the other side. So, returning to the Brahmaviharas, I would like to particularly speak this evening uh, about the Brahmaviharas in the context of the Asavas. There's another Pali word for you. Now, nearly half raised their hands for knowing about Brahmaviharas. How many know what the Asavas are? one hand. So, the asavas, maybe two, I'm not sure. Uh, asavas are sometimes translated as, uh, actually I think we all know what they are. Sometimes translated as cankers. Uh, the asavas are used for physical things on the body that ooze or are sore, like a, like a canker sore or a festering wound. Um, the asavas are also a means, in, in, at least in the Pali language, of uh, uh, describing the, the outflow of liquids from the body, like for the tears, or out of the nose, or what comes out of your ears, or what comes out underneath your fingernails. I, I don't know, is that an asava or not? <laughs> but out of crevices and holes, and uh, you know, whether eyes, ears, nose, um, mouth, uh, body, our pores, 
uh, all these various orifices that the, the body has in terms of the physical body. And then we have this perception of there being something like this with regards the mind. So not only, like if we think about the skin and all of its pores, you know, not only are things excreted, fluids, but also there's the taking in, right? So the, the skin is another lung. So there's the breathing in and the breathing out. And the asavas are also translated as inflows or outflows. So for, for our eyes as well, there's the sense of the, the input of information. And also, like if you look at someone and say they're there in an intense mood, doesn't it look like there's the output as well? Yes. We see that for the eyes, certainly we know things go in the mouth and things also come out of the mouth. For the ears, we may think, okay, we think that's, is that just receiving? Does anything come out? Nose, we know definitely goes in and out, especially those who have practiced with mindfulness of breathing. You may be super, super aware of the inflow and the outflow of the, of the breath. Uh, through the nose, and again, the whole body does this. And then for the mind, sound, mental perception of sound, as I was talking about during the, during the meditation time, uh, asking you to be aware of, there's this sense that there's something from out there that's coming in, yeah? And truly, we understand by science there's a vibration, there are these vibrations that are happening and the eyes make sight, the nose makes smell out of that soup of vibrations, maybe non-differentiated, but nose and all of, all of our sense organs then uh, differentiate them and make different things out of them. Um, so in this space here now, I think sight, sound, very different or not according to our sense organs. And Buddhism normally talks about six senses. So five we were talking about, but normally mind, mind as a sense base. I think we could say brain as a sense organ. Polytext doesn't quite say that. But, <laughs> uh, but mind, mind itself as a sense base uh, is also very much included. And with regards to the Brahma-viharas, I particularly want to talk about these, these sense spaces and about the, the, the sense space of the mind. So this inflow and outflow, inflow and outflow, the asavas, asava, inflow and outflow. But why called cankers? With regards, with regards things that are troublesome with regards things that are trouble, with regards things that we find uh, afflictive, difficult, problematic. How much of it does it seem like comes from outside and then comes into us? Others' speech, for example, things that we see, that's hearing, sight, physical contact with what we think are external objects, or just, what is it? vibes, I don't know, good vibrations or bad vibrations. Uh, we think that these are coming from outside and then they affect us. 
It can even seem like something that we see, like it comes from outside and then it infects our mind somehow. Or it can seem like everything outside is fine and someone is in a, someone's in a bad space and then that comes out through their eyes, through their words, through their physical posture and energy and the mind, what kind of mind that's coming from. So these, this, this area here, this is what would be called the, the asawas in, uh, in, in Theravada Buddhism, in, in the Pali texts. So sometimes translated as defilements. Defilements, afflictions, taints. None of these sound too, too nice, yes? Or too, too pleasant. But do you all get a sense of what I'm talking about, basically? Yes. So I was looking at the tapestries that are hanging here, these, uh, these uh, paintings, images of the Buddha. Uh, now I remember them from the previous location as well, and here in this location too. And um, if you look at the, the one that's here on my right hand, you see this image of the Buddha uh, sitting uh, like in meditation posture, uh, and then with one hand touching down to the earth. So it's like as if you were sitting with your hands, both your hands on your lap, and then opened up one hand and then touched down. This is a very popular image, um, one of the most popular images of the Buddha. This is called the Earth Witness Posture. Uh, the Buddha is touching down uh, to the earth. Uh, in, uh, what is it, in Buddhist myths, in old storytelling, the time that this happened, this scene actually involves a number of other either allegorical or real beings. Mara is supposed to have turned up. So part of this image here. Now, in Theravada Buddhism, we have different kinds of Mara. One would be like what, what would be called the devil in normal English parlance, I think. Yes? Maybe we get ideas from Christianity or where, where we get them from in this regard. Yes? Uh, another would be for mental afflictions. Polytechs recognize both. Uh, that is that people can get in, or beings can get into really bad spaces and be, be really bad guys or really bad gals. Yes, uh, that, that, that is possible and it can also, sometimes it can go on. So sometimes somebody is born in a bad mood and, and, and they wreak havoc and, and then they pass away. And, um, uh, again, according to mythology, uh, one of the Buddha's foremost disciples, one of the Buddha's great disciples is supposed to have been Mara in a previous life. So not permanent in the Buddhist idea. Not, not like you're assigned to being a bad guy forever that anybody is a bad guy forever. Yes, there can be the bad days. Yes, there can be the bad years. Yes, there can be the bad moments, but all impermanent. 
and ultimately not a fixed identity, which means that just like someone can become president and leave that, someone can be, you know, at one time we're child, at one time we're parent, at one time we're husband or wife, at one time we're boss, at one time we're employee. We take on these roles temporarily. We can make identities out of them, more or less, uh, but very temporary very temporary. So Buddhist idea of this covers everybody and everything. So nobody is finally permanently anything, including Mara showing up in this scene, whether as, this is a pre-enlightenment scene by the way, just before, before awakening, near, near to awakening, and then Mara is supposed to have shown up with an entire army of all of the worst imaginable things. I don't know what we would call them these days. Like, at that time they had swords and bows and arrows and flaming things that you throw and this kind of thing. And uh, what now would Mara show up with? I'm not sure. Nuclear weapons? Uh, or drone attacks? Or, or, or what that would be? But like the, the worst of the worst and all the hold, you know, if we imagine everybody who we ever thought of as a bad guy or a bad gal showing up there with the worst of the weapons that they have. So people ask, was this just happening in his psychology? Was this just happening in his, in his consciousness at that time? Like he's getting near to awakening and the last of all the really stuff comes out. And this is the final showdown, the big, the big test, you know? Uh, there's another, uh, another, someone else who shows up here in this image that you don't, don't see there. And that is uh, Mother Earth. Uh, this touching down to the earth. Uh, Mara is supposed to have said, what right do you have? What makes you? And if you think about, if you've ever heard anyone say anything bad to you, or you've ever thought anything bad to yourself or anyone else, what kind of words you might have said, you lousy scum, you, what makes you think that you have any right, that you could possibly, that this could actually be possible for you. What right do you have? Yes? Sometimes we're like that even to be able to uh, allow ourselves the time to have sitting meditation. I know. It's like you have to do other things. You're slave to this and slave to that. <laughs> and to allow yourself the time that you, that you need. Uh, to to care for yourself well, or you know to allow these negative fabrications, negative ideas all bound up and uh, constricted, to allow them to release and relax enough to be able to open and to see things clearly and release and let go and know what's true and actual and let all of those fabrications unbind, which allows you the real seeing and knowing, yes? So here in this image, just before this touching down, there was the question of what right do you have? Who the hell do you think you are that you can, that you can do this? Yeah? And I think for most of us at some place in ourselves, deeply there may be this kind of uh, doubt in all those 
internalized voices gathered together, then, if successful, can be our hindrance, can block us, can restrain us, restrict us, and not allow that possibility for us. Uh, if not successful in this case, the Buddha is sitting in this posture right here and touching down. The question was, what right do you have? And he's supposed to have touched the earth and the Indian mythological earth mother, earth goddess, then comes forth as, as witness, saying, this, this is your right. Next scene here, around this image, Mara's armies are supposed to have attacked. So all of that negativity objectified in others, in the world, in everything negative, evil, bad in the world that you can possibly imagine, all of that then attacking, apparently. So in the story, in the story, the Buddha is supposed to have remained then clear in himself, in this posture. And due to the depth of loving-kindness and compassion in his intention, due to the strength and clarity of his intention to get beyond, to transcend, to penetrate, to pass through, not to be caught up in that fatally one more time again, to be fatally caught in these things, this is the trap of Mara, to be defeated by these things, to be fatally caught in them. Mara literally means death. In Pali, the word means death. Yeah. I don't know what devil, the devil word, what is it, yeah, what that means, but Mara means death, literally. So to be fatally caught, again, in the... Uh, in the images, some of the images that we have, the flaming arrows, swords, all of these things coming into the sphere of that intention are illustrated as transforming into flowers and then raining gently down on the body of this being about to become the Buddha. And seeing that, Mara, whether psychological afflictions or actual beings, found this is hopeless. <laughs> the arrows couldn't stick anywhere. <laughs> no place for them to land. And gave up and went away, leaving him then to the uh, final, final stages uh, in his complete awakening. So for all of us, if we were sitting in that seat, what would be our Mara? What would be Mara's army? What are the things that we hold in that way? Who are the people that we hold in that way? What would be their weapons? What would be the things that would be like if Mara really knew us? <laughs> and if, if Mara is, you know, the afflictions of our own psychology, then what knows us better? <laughs> um, in a way. But actually, there is what knows better. If there wasn't what knows better, then this 
this scene and what happened after it wouldn't be possible. And real depth of progress, healing, uh, transformation for ourselves in this path of practice also wouldn't be possible, but not so. The Buddha mentioned in Anguttara Nikaya, um, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, most recently translated and published by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, if any of you have read the middle-length discourses of the Buddha or the longer discourses of the Buddha, now the numerical discourses of the Buddha came out um, most recently. And uh, the Book of the Ones comes first. Makes sense, good place for it. Uh, so right there in the beginning of the book, in the, in the Book of the Ones, there is the place where the Buddha mentions uh, he's speaking to I don't know, to bhikkhus or bhikkhunis or both, monastics or a monastic and lay audience. Sometimes I think he addressed the monastics, but he was actually speaking to some of the lay people. Maybe just like, I don't know, <laughs> speaking indirectly. So supposing I wanted to say something to you, but I don't want to tell you directly, and so then I speak to to, to them instead. <laughs> and you get to hear and to benefit from that, but I'm talking to them, right? So you're off the hook in a way. <laughs> I suspect sometimes many of, the, many of the discourses of the Buddha that we have are like that. Um, but some we know, many we know actually, speaking directly to the lay friends and people of different faiths and religions and traditions and uh, like the Buddha, talk to everybody. Um, even people who came up and confronted him and said, like, you know, <laughs> what do you do? What value do you have? Also talked, also talked to them, uh, like beautifully and reasonably. I really admire that. In this case, Book of the Ones, uh, the Buddha says, bhikkhus, means monks, there is this one thing why it's in the ones. Because uh, this mind is essentially luminous. This mind is essentially bright, but may be defiled or obscured by adventitious defilements. And then repeats this again, because this mind or heart is essentially fundamentally bright and if not obscured by adventitious defilements. So these defilements may or may not be there. Not our essential self. Not our essential nature in the Buddha's teaching. Like a glass of water you can put inside a tea bag, or you can put inside some honey, or you can put inside some sugar, or you can filter it out again run it through the water filter. The things may be there or they may not be there, can come in, can come out. Not essential in water. Yes? Air also. If we lit some candles and some incense, the air would fill with smoke. If we put them out and turn on the air purifier, our air may become fresh and clean in here again. Not essential to air. If we stopped burning carbon for 10 years, or even five years, 
or even one year. Imagine. The hermitage that I live at, the air comes right in off the ocean, very fresh and clean and clear. Sometimes I think, why would we want it any other way? Why, why should we breathe this other stuff? For what? Um, the water, um, except for the cow pollution from the nearby ranch. It's uh, very fresh and clean and clear. You know, so full of living energy. Oh, why would we, why would we have it any other way? I ask myself sometimes, living in this, living in this environment. Why should we poison ourselves? It's purely optional. Yes? Who is making us do this? No one. <laughs> I mean, it's being, being done together, yes, with all of, our, all of our participation in various ways. And fortunately, because of many good people's participation, not worse than it is. And fortunately, due to many people's good participation, getting better in so many ways, where it's getting better, where it's getting cleaner, um, for our own hearts, for the streams, for the space, yes, for that uh, radiance that was being spoken of. Sometimes the Buddha also spoke about this as gold and this path, like coming into this path and meditating like this, being like mining for gold, going into the underground and into the hills and bringing out the gold ore. This is excellent for California in the old days. Uh, bringing out the gold ore and then, then the gold gets smelted. And in the smelting, then whatever dross, whatever impurities are in the gold, that gets burned off and the gold becomes pure. And that liquid gold, then whatever you pour it into, it takes that shape. Yes? So this is being used also as an analogy for the essential qualities of our heart and mind. This is very different than some other religious and philosophical teachings, which might make us believe that the asawas, the cankers, the afflictions, the sin, that this is part of our essential nature. Not according to the Buddha's teaching after his awakening, after his experience of the awakening. Right there in, in number one, yes, yes, these things can happen. Yes, they do happen to a lot of people quite a lot of the time. Yes, we can take things on negatively, and they can be held negatively, and they can be perpetuated negatively in harmful and hurtful ways. All of that is completely true, and yet we're not asked to believe that this is part of our essential or fundamental nature. But at least with the Buddha's come and see type of teaching, like come and see for yourself, try for yourself, see if it's true. Please don't completely believe me until you actually know for yourself. This could be taken tentatively, yes? For me now working with this, I really appreciated as a young skeptic, as a young skeptical American coming in this way, I appreciated being able to come into this path with lots of doubt, 
being able to ask uh, lots of questions, the most challenging and difficult questions that I could think of, and having those being welcomed, finding that there was a whole Buddhist tradition of like debating all of these questions. It's like, oh yeah, heard that one before, been there, done that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these, <laughs> these Buddhist debaters <laughs> and <laughs> working with these things over time. Uh, so like really welcome and also welcome to, to use the tools that the Buddha taught to, to investigate to investigate and see what can be seen and know what can be known for oneself. A lot of emphasis on the real ground of our experience and what we actually know. What does all of this have to do with the Brahma-viharas that I've been asked to speak about? So, talking about what's seen Let's start with what we see. It seems like what is seen is coming in from outside. If that's a sight that's pleasing to us, we may feel good. A sight not pleasing to us may feel unwell. Yes? Supposing that sight not pleasing to us was some, someone that we care about doing something that we think is very bad, not good. We see that, we feel unwell. We think that's them, that's because of them. We might think, because of them, I feel bad. Because of them, I am hurt. Because of them, I am wounded. And even remembering that, one year, five years, ten years, thirty years, fifty years, sixty years, seventy years later, still think that <clears throat> when thinking, because of him, he said, she said, yes? How we can do that? Outside. Seems like outside coming in. Is it so? Many of you already may have have taken a good look at this. Have taken a good, long, long look at this and seen the illusion. Because where does that emotion happen? How that is construed, where does that happen? Who did the construction of it? Did they make my experience like this? It's so seductive. Even when people gain insight into this, still it can happen to them. Still. <laughs> it's like drive out and you're going to turn left and, and you know the light is green and then someone else goes beep beep and you're like, ah, hey, <laughs> you. <laughs> Whose body and mind is that happening in and how? Is it the only way that it can happen? Definitely not, yeah? Have you noticed when you feel very well loved or are in love, when you've been treated very compassionately, really beautifully, or really appreciated, whether by your partner or your children or your parents or your workmates or your colleagues or your friends, They've just really appreciated you for something. Feeling so good about that, 
somebody drives in front of you, do you care? Let them hunt. There are some bad expressions like, oh, pity the fool, right? <laughs> uh, but nicer side of that is you might even feel sorry for them. Oh, sorry. I'm having a great day. <laughs> Feeling really good, well-loved, oh. with, treated with much compassion, much appreciation. I have joy. How about when there's joy? when you've experienced joy. Are these things going to bother you so much when that is really strong in you? Generally not. All of us, whether we've ever been in love or not, most of us, we've seen the crazy people in love. <laughs> like, what is it? Uh, butterflies everywhere, and uh, <laughs> the sun is, sun is shining so beautifully, and, uh, you know, meet someone upset and um, may not face them. You grouch at them, they'll be like, come hug you, kiss you. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Lighten up. <laughs> uh, because that's what it's like when love, when love is strong in us when we're pervaded, our bodies and minds are pervaded by love. So, these Brahma-viharas, these things that the Buddha spoke about as in their immeasurable form, when they're allowed to become boundless, widely pervasive to the point of becoming boundless, uh, called liberations of mind, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciation, or appreciative joy, and equipoise, equipoise, equanimity, yes? These qualities, often also we think we get them from outside. As young people, we might know them largely from outside. Who treats us with love? Who loves us? Who cares for us with love? How good that feels, what a wonderful thing that is to be so safe, to be so secure, to be so known, to be known with love, to be treated with compassion. When someone shares our joy, when something good happens to us and they're not angry or jealous, when our brother or sister, when we get a great toy and they don't say, give that to me and no, give it back. If, if they ever were like, oh, Wow, that is so fantastic. You are so lucky. Wow, that's beautiful. And they mean it, and they really feel like that, like does happen when we love someone, when we deeply love them. Like with the little kids, mom with the small child, you know. Child is like, ah! And mom is like, oh, what can I do to help you? And I mean, if her love is on, yes. <laughs> And then next minute the child is like, oh, so happy about something and delighted and you know, like this. And oh, how sweet. Oh, so adorable. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so nice. You're so dear. You're so precious. Yes. Mm. And um, between these and, and, and like this, then they have to have the equanimity because otherwise they would go crazy. <laughs> they would tear their hair out. <laughs> and none of us would be alive <laughs> because they would have killed us <laughs> crying in the middle of the night every single night so they couldn't sleep day after day after day after day you know have to have it the human beings have to have that to be able to survive we are wired 
for this kind of love and joy and compassion and equanimity. Our bodies and minds, our hearts are wired for it. As human beings, we are built for this. It is part of our DNA, it's part of our biology, part of our birthright. We all have the ability and the capacity for it. Like muscle, now I was away from my dwelling in the forest for a month. Before I left, going up and down the hill, hiking up and down the hill between my little meditation cabin and our, our commons area, it's a bit of a hike. I was fine, not out of breath. My heart wasn't banging, muscles weren't screaming. Now, after only one month of not doing that, I came back a couple of days ago and I tried to walk up even a small bit of the hill and I'm, <sighs> I'm out of breath. So what happened, muscles, where are you? <laughs> didn't use them for a month and there, like, didn't just stay there. Yeah? Also for our hearts, these qualities, they can also be exercised. If they're not exercised, if they're not exercised for a week, if they're not exercised for a month, if they're not exercised for years, they may tend to atrophy, but not permanent, not fatal. Little bit of exercise, they start to grow again. Yes. What is it like the seed just sitting there dry? A little bit of water comes and suddenly this incredible biological process starts to happen. All of these inner programs that are there that were lying dormant, not activated, start to become activated, turn on. It's so amazing if you look at the chemical biology of what's, <laughs> of what's happening in the human body when love and compassion and joy turn on, when they get watered. When they get watered from outside, it is a beautiful and profound thing. When they get watered from inside, all the more so, all the more so. And this is also the most beautiful and amazing thing, is that we have the ability to do the watering from the inside. We completely have the ability. If we don't, if we've forgotten how to do it, completely learnable. And not like it takes, oh, $50,000 in a doctorate degree, or what is it, that would be more like $500,000 now? Um, not at all. Very, uh, like, simple, simple things that we can do ourselves completely for free in moments, and in fact, at any time like you take time just for your sitting meditation practice and then you bring that out into your walking bring that out, I hope, into your driving bring that out, I hope, when you go to the supermarket bring that out, I hope, when you go for your work or your generous and beneficent activities or with your families, 
I hope, because all of these are open spheres to bring that benefit into. Yes? Really, the imagination, we could say the imagination is the limit. I don't even want to set that as a limit because I found for myself sometimes opening up the mind and heart to possibility and allowing that possibility and just doing the work that's called for is like beyond what I imagined. Not even limited by my imagination. Amazingly, amazingly so. So when we're in a good space, what we receive, how we see things, how we take them in, how we hold them, is very different than when we are not in a good space. Yes? Would you all agree? Have you all experienced this? Just about everybody's nodding. This is more than who knows about the Brahma Viharas. It means actually you know. Very important to deeply understand this ourselves, what we know. When I am in a good space, I see things differently than when I'm not. When I am in a good space, I receive things differently. I take in, I take on things differently. In fact, very differently than when I'm not. When I'm in a good space, I hold things differently. And sometimes that holding can last for years and years. If something has been taken in in a way that's not well, not healthy, not benevolent, not benign, taken in and held like that can last for years, can last until death. We can bring it to the grave or crematory place. Uh, with us, or a green burial. <laughs> uh, I, I just say this, maybe it's not called green burial. Um, when, when I lived in the mountain forest meditation tradition in South Korea, there was this tradition of some of the mountain forest meditating monastics when they felt like it was their time to go, like they just went out into the forest and just said, let this body be for the animals. Let it be a gift of food to other, to other living beings. And they just, they just passed away like that. I don't know if that's called green burial or not. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, so, hmm. when we're not in a good space, even someone else's overtures of love and kindness can turn us wrong, can't they? Not to mention the other things. Someone's small slip. You ask them to remember something and they forgot it today and, and you're like, ah! <laughs> Why did I just forgot this little thing? Ah! <laughs> um, because of not, not, being, not being in a good space. So, for Brahma Viharas, for immeasurables, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. For what I'm seeing, 
I ask myself, am I seeing this with kindness? If the answer is no, my question again is, what would this look like if I see it with kindness? Stop myself. If I'm not seeing it with kindness, what would this look like if I saw it with kindness? What does it look like if I see it with kindness? And allowing yourself to see and know that in your mind, in your heart, also in the body, in the body. If you're not seeing something with kindness, you can notice, how does it feel? What is this hard, rigid body with its various tight muscles and contracted places and skin density, all, all of these things, the breath, what's that like? No fun, exactly. <laughs> My goodness, that's a body in stress. <laughs> That's stress. Uh, that's the body in pain. Uh, oh, when we see things and we see them and it's not with kindness, how painful can that be? Oh, how our stomachs can hurt. How our chests can hurt. How our hearts can hurt. Even our jaws can hurt. Our heads can hurt. Our shoulders can hurt. Our backs can hurt. Our hips can hurt. Sometimes you have to work hard to find a place that doesn't hurt when it's like that. <laughs> yeah, I learned this in Buddhism. Okay, my right pinky is not in pain right now. Let me focus my mind there. <laughs> There's one small place of this body. I'm terribly grieved. My heart is on fire. <laughs> and yet there's this spot on my pinky. <laughs> to allow the attention. Mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy will teach you that skill. It is a good skill to have, and yet, if you can see it with kindness, not only will your pinky change, and even your pinky will change, in fact, because when it's like that, maybe your pinky's not painful, but sometimes it still feels kind of dead, where there's this feeling of, like, still somehow something not good. Even the pinky. It's like, because without kindness, what feels good? Ah... Uh, without compassion. So number two, let's go to compassion. Am I seeing it with compassion? Am I seeing this with compassion? If I'm not, what would it look like if I were to see it with compassion? I ask myself and I pause. I allow time for my natural faculties to work. Sometimes it takes a few seconds. Sometimes it takes even a minute or two. Normally, it doesn't take more than a couple of minutes as compared to the hours and days and weeks and months and years of the things that we hold without seeing with compassion. But it's hard to be patient for the 20 seconds or the two minutes that, takes, that it takes to actually really pause and stop and see and see what does this look like if I look at it with compassion. What does it look like? Now how do I see it? And what happens in this body? What happens in this heart? What happens in this mind? How does it shift and change? And allow yourself to abide in that, to abide with that, to let that be your mode of physical 
and mental and heart and spiritual abiding, imbued with kindness, imbued with compassion, not to mention appreciation for what is good, for what is beautiful, joy. And then there's the really radical and challenging one. So something has just happened to rock your world. And you stop and you ask, what if I were to see this with equanimity? Oh my goodness. Oh, what would that be? And you give yourself the two or three seconds or the 10 or 20 seconds or the two minutes to allow your faculties of mind to go to work with that, like the Google search. <laughs> Whether your computer is fast or slow, and to bring up what you're searching for, which is seeing this with equanimity. What does it look like? And if something else comes up, then you have to put it, search, no, not this. Is equanimity there? No, 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 no. It's like all these junk things are coming up. You have to be willing to look through them until you find what it is that you're particularly looking for and then touch into that and open that up, allow that to open it up and, and to, see, to see what's there, to see and feel and know and explore what's there. There are many other good things inside it when you do that. It doesn't just end there, it doesn't just end with that. If we have no habit to do this, it can be like rusty, a little sticky, a little stiff. It can be slower at first if we don't have the habit. If you do this even once or twice, allowing that 20 seconds to two minutes, already with the miracle that these bodies and minds are, our neural pathways, having made that bridge once, next time, so much faster and easier. Two times, even three times, like you recited Namotasa three times, three refuges three times, even two times, but if, if three times, already starts to become easy, fluent, familiar, fast, 10 times, might even start to become a default. Like the tendency to do that might rank much higher on your list. Might even become the first thing on your list. And that's because you've gone to it again and again and these systems that we've made with searching are modeled why they're intuitive is because they're modeled on what we naturally have with our own body and mind. This is the way our, our neurobiology works, our neuropsychology. Yeah. The pathway gets opened up. The Buddha said, also after his full awakening, 
He said it was like coming upon an ancient path that hadn't been trod, that hadn't been, hadn't been walked on or hadn't been driven through for quite a while. Having cleared it, having passed through it, our neurobiology is also like this, all these pathways, uh, easy to go through, clear and easy, very fast, just a few times, 10 times, 20 times, how many, probably even in one day, if you were to practice this in the things of your life, even for one day, how many opportunities do you think you might have? <laughs> what you could do, what you can do actually with this practice, even in a single day of your life, if you were to just take every opportunity in one given day for this, unobstructed with regards where you are or who you're with, doesn't matter inside or outside, with humans or with animals, or even with those voices inside ourselves, even when there's no one else there and we look in the mirror, what do we tell ourselves? And what happens when we stop right there? and look back at ourself in the mirror, and what does it look like if I look at myself with kindness, with compassion, with appreciation? It's amazing I've done this, as instructed by one of my teachers. I watched the whole, like the dimensions of the face change, live, right there in the mirror. It was so weird. I wasn't trying to move anything, just all these subtle, subtle things that happened. Yes? And then I looked at the light in the eyes and saw how it changed. I think I had been looking at myself accusingly for some reason. Accusingly. Light in the eyes when looking accusingly is like daggers. Like this. And watched, watched it change into something else that all of us as human beings know. This kind of bright and twinkling beautiful light. Like when there's the light of love and, and compassion and appreciation in the eyes and in the heart. And oh, it looks so different. Oh, I, I felt like it nearly broke my heart to watch that. It's just me alone in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah? I thought, we're, excuse me for saying this, new, newly, newly with this teaching, <laughs> this weird monk. <laughs> What's this? Telling me to go look at myself in the mirror in the bathroom. <laughs> this is kind of weird. <laughs> uh, but I did it. I tried it. And then I started to be able to hear the voices these internalized voices that were allowed to come in without that kindness, without that compassion, without that love, and were held and were stored and were recorded and had been playing those unloving, unkind, uncompassionate, unappreciative recordings back. Even I didn't consciously hear them, but playing them back over and over again. 
Even they're not there. Some of them already dead. Maybe they said something just one time in kindergarten <laughs> or first grade. I've never seen them again. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> holding, holding. When we practice with mindfulness of the body, we become aware of holding of held energy in the body in various places, whether in our guts, or in our chest, or in our throat, or in our temples, or in our jaws, or in our shoulders, wherever it might be, the holding, holding of things, how we hold things, just by yourself, even just by yourself, with your body, for these places in the body. What would it be like? Well, first, am I holding this with kindness, compassion, appreciation, this place of the body where there's tension or too much heat or too much cold or binding up, hardening, if not, what would it be like if I were to hold this with kindness, this place of pain, this place of contraction, and allow yourself that uh, 10 seconds or 20 seconds or two or three or four or five minutes to know and feel and see what happens when I allow that space to be held with kindness, with compassion, with appreciation, and see and know how the body shifts, how it changes, not forcing anything to happen. It's just an opening, it's just an invitation. And then we see, we observe, we allow we allow that to happen. We're giving permission. Because with a holding pattern, the direction is hold that, hold that, hold that, hold that. Don't let go, don't let go, don't let go. Because what? Something happened in the past. You saw something, or you heard something, or you felt something, and it wasn't able to be seen or heard or felt with kindness or compassion. And you didn't want to react in a way that was dangerous. And you held. You held it. And if you didn't have time five minutes later or ten minutes later or later on in the day to be able to see that and know it, and let it go in a safe space, in a space of kindness and compassion, where it was all right to see and know that and to let it go, then that holding pattern holds and it keeps holding. And it keeps holding as long as that direction is there. Like airplanes in the sky not able to land, keeps going uh, 
round and round and round and round. And there's a tightness and there's a tension in that. But when we bring another direction to it, when we allow the new program, a new intention to come to that space, it shifts, it changes, it responds to that new intention, that new direction, and that held energy becomes liberated and free to become something else, imbued with kindness and compassion and appreciation and awareness. That energy is unbound and it becomes available to you in your life once again for whatever good purpose you would like to use it. No longer stuck in a dysfunctional holding pattern. So it's eight o'clock. Thank you kindly for listening, for being uh, together, together with me uh, this evening. Uh, I'm not just talking about these things in theory, I think you know. I've been there, done that with all of this. <laughs> I mean, the various ways to see things, hear them, hold them, and greatly benefited from how this can work, how it does work progressively over time. Even one day, not to mention a life lived like this, years of life lived in this way. Like, if you would give years of life to this, if there's any scope in it for you, I think looking back, you would not think those years were wasted. Those would be the good years. <laughs> the beautiful years, the years well spent. The years about which you might not have regret. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.